couple of things about the school. Then we're going we're gonna to go to the Word today, and, and uh, I just hope that it, it refreshes you. So, um, Master's called in seminary. I've had the privilege now to, to be there for, for almost 10 years. I left Woodville Church and came on staff at the school, and almost five years ago transitioned from my particular role at that time to, to president. I never saw this coming, and yet I simply have always said, Lord, just direct my, my steps. And, uh, and so it's been a journey. Um, and uh, you may not know about the school, formerly Eastern Pentecostal Bible College. Uh, you might not know the history or the journey. We've, we've uh, been in Peterborough for a long time and, and came to Toronto for a season and back to Peterborough. And it's been, a, it's been an excellent transition there. And, and uh, community life is, is fantastic. And the students are, are just really, um, it, it's just a great place to be and, and to, to be a part of and to, and to, to, to study and and, um, and our mission statement is, is right here. We, we really are about two things. We're about preparing leaders for, for Pentecostal ministry. We want to see students who are spirit-filled and servant-hearted. That's really our, our mission, that uh, we can't do anything without the Spirit's power, and that we serve others, and we serve as leaders, and as we do that, we, we can change the world for, for, the, for the message of the gospel. So that's what we're all about, and, uh, and so we've... We've had some ups and downs. We have about 150 students right now who are studying uh, on campus. Right now, uh, this is our final Sunday for our interns. We have about 32 of those across eastern Canada, our fourth-year interns, just finishing up their, their uh, times in churches and uh, just uh, excited to see them come back. Our graduation is at the end of uh, April at Global Kingdom Ministries on, on Saturday. Um, we have about another 120 so students who study by uh, distance education or online studies. And, and so we really uh, provide opportunities no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what background or, or, or uh, you know, career in life, that if you sense that God is calling you to deepen your understanding of the word or, or uh, serving in, in the local church here, we'd love to partner with you to perhaps allow you to grow in your, 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 your understanding of the word and, and maybe even a, a second career in ministry uh, that you're, you're thinking, you know, there's a sense of calling on, on my life. Whatever we can do to serve you, whether it's on the campus or online, we, we'd be happy to do that. I have a short video that I want to play for you. And, and uh, I, I play this because, as Pastor Jeff has mentioned, you, you do support the school. And I want to thank you for that. And I think that as investors, as partners, as people who have donated, as you've tied to the church and the church, churches in turn supported the school, I, I think I'd want to know, how is that being stewarded? How is that being used? And so we're going to watch this, this quick video. The journey starts here. It starts with community. It starts in the classroom with good friends and with our professors. It starts with a walk with a friend and a meal at the cafe. starts in our chapel services. It can even start online. Before graduating, before pulpit, before title, before church, it starts here. 
our, our reality is that we, we need church partnership. We, we can't do it alone. Uh, we have a bit of a gap between what students pay and, and uh, what it costs to educate students. It's about a $600 per student gap. And so when you support as a church, that helps us to close those gaps and to prepare leaders to, to serve in churches across Canada around the world. Just recently, it was interesting for me to, to, to watch the conversation on our alumni Facebook page. And we recently asked a question, where are you now and what are you doing? And it was fascinating to see the graduates from Eastern and Masters and what kingdom initiatives they had gone into around the globe. Not just traditional past church pastoring, but so many different things that our graduates go and do. And that's a legacy that we're proud of. And it starts here. So whatever it may be, that a young man or woman who senses a call of God in their life, to come and train at Masters and we prepare leaders for Pentecostal service. So thank you for your partnership and we, we really count on it and appreciate it. One uh, event of note that I want to draw your attention to is um, an opportunity that um, we're providing for people across Ontario. We're doing 18 experience cafes. The, the one that's kind of closest to you in your area is Tuesday, May the 1st at Cedarview in Newmarket. And these are one-hour cafe nights where we're just uh, you know, sort of raising awareness of the experience of what it would mean to be a student. What do you actually do there? And how do you learn? And how do you teach? And what's the leadership environment like? And so in just one hour, dessert and coffee, 6.30 to 7.30, it's, it's a free, uh, free night. We're just inviting guests to come and, and to spend that time with us, to learn a little bit more about us. Maybe Masters is not for you, but maybe it's for somebody that you know. Maybe it's somebody in your family that you just sent, you know, I, I, I've heard that this is what Masters is all about, and you, you might want to check it out. So we offer this as an opportunity to come, and, and uh, just if you want to register on our website at uh, www.mcs.edu. Well, let's get to the word this morning, and, and uh, the message that I felt the Lord leading me to the, this, just this week to, to share is, is my own story. It's called The, the Debt, my, my journey with, with unforgiveness, and... Um, Again, it's just, it's just raw rich. It's just me just kind of bearing my heart to you today, and I, I hope we're, we're good with that. I, I remember when, um, when we got the word that my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. It was the late 70s, and at that period of time in, in, in science, in, in medicine, that was a death sentence. You didn't really recover from a diagnosis like that the late 70s. And so here we are as a family. We had been attending Bethel Church in Ottawa. My dad was on the board. My mom was a school teacher. She had taken time off to, to have us, but she was very involved in the church. And we were very integral in the life of the community and, and many friends. And so as this news began to spread, many people rallied around us and supported us. And I remember the church being the church. As a young boy and my brother, a little a couple years uh, younger than me, just trying to process, what does this all mean? And so we, we understood that this was kind of serious. We had been as a family reaching out to this woman who was uh, working with my father at, in his office. He was uh, di- uh, working for the government and directing a department, a ministry of transportation, and, and this was a woman that we'd invited to church. And as we invited her to church, she experienced the, the hope in Jesus Christ, and her, her life turned around, and it was such a moment of celebration for us. We, we were part of this as a, as a family, and, and this was happening at kind of the, the, same, the same time. 
we were all trying to figure out what to do with the news and, and, and process this, and yet my father began to, began to panic. He, he didn't know what to do. Young, two young boys, his wife, who was you know, diagnosed with cancer and the prognosis wasn't, wasn't strong, and he began to panic, and he began to find solace in the arms of this woman. And I remember for a period of two years, he would come and go from my home. And uh, he, he just was battling this, this whole thing, just struggling, and it was just tearing our, our home apart. I remember what it, it felt like to, to be a young guy whose father, who was his hero, just kind of began to let him down and not be the man of God that I thought he was. And it was, it was hard to, to walk through. I'll never forget the moment where he left our home for the last time. I was looking out my bedroom window, and I saw him get in the car and drive away. And it was in that moment where I said these words, that if he was going to do this to our family, treat my mom like this, in the middle of her pain, I never wanted to see him again. I remember that, that sense that that was it. I was writing him out of my life. If he was going to do this to us. I didn't want anything to do with him. And in that moment, as a 10-year-old kid, I decided that that's it, you're no longer going to have anything to do with me. And so as I went through junior high school, and uh, it's, it's not really me, um, I don't have pictures of those days, but um, as I went through junior high school and, and, and um, just this kid who didn't feel like he belonged, his other families didn't look like ours, and we, we kind of struggled with, with fitting in, and I, I got sad and angry, I'd, I felt rejected, and I, I, I distinctly remember the, the emotion that if, if he's going to do this to me, if this is the way that he's going to treat me, then, then I'm going to ruin his life because he's ruined mine. I, uh, we can't do the same trips as other families did, and we didn't have the same kind of access to various things because my mom had to go back to work, and it was hard to find work, and she's dealing with cancer, and we're trying to sort all this out. He's ruining my life. I'm going I'm to ruin his. There's no way I'm going to see him efforts to, to connect, uh, I'd say no. He would send me gift. I'd send them back. We would completely ignore any of it. I was going to ruin his life. I was going to make his life miserable. And so I moved from junior high school to high school, and I threw my entire life into our church. I decided that I was going to be involved, and I was going to lead, and I was going to uh, participate, and this is what was going to be the place that I could find some sort of acceptance for having been been rejected. And so I really began to cover my hate like a boss. I, I, people couldn't tell that I had this inner angst and anger and hatred against my father. In fact, I began to get this nickname, was the golden boy. That's how people began to understand me and refer to me, and mostly because of, uh, you know, I was held up against my brother. And uh, for those of you who know my brother, I know some of you do, uh, I guess it wasn't too easy or too hard to be the golden boy when Matt, because Matt kind of reacted to this whole news in a whole different way than me. So I had this persona that I was the golden boy. That was who I was, was going to be. It was really easy. And I, I remember, though, internally feeling that, that anger and that hatred. And yet, as I went through high school, I began to realize my calling to ministry. And I remember the moment in time where I said, God, I'm going to give you my whole life. I'm going to serve you entirely. I want to do great things for you. And so I decided to go to Bible school, and as Jeff has referenced, in 1991. And, and uh, my, my Bible college years were 
absolutely amazing. I knew I was where I needed to be. It was exactly the place that I needed to be in those moments. Again, there was no contact with my father. I wanted nothing to do with him. Hadn't spoken to him in years, but I knew I was following God, and, and there was growth in my life, and there was things that were happening and changing, and I remember not only uh, knowing that I had come to the right spot, but that I had found the person that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. And I remember the night I, I said to Kim, December the 24th, 1994, I love you, Kim. Will, will you marry me? I, I mean, the plan itself was, was great. Uh, Parliament Hill in Ottawa. And uh, if you've ever been in Ottawa in the middle of winter, you know it can be a little unpredictable. So I had great romantic plans for that evening. I mean, it was all laid out, and it was about minus 350. And um, <laughs> so I sent these words to her in our car. <laughs> There's a console in the way. It's just, you know, it's awkward. And, but I, I remember it significantly for um, the sense that this is what love is. This is, this is what love is. And I wanted to, to give my, my life to this, this woman. So 20, 23 years ago. So uh, this, is a, this is a picture of us. This is to confirm, yes, Jeff, I did have hair. I rocked, I rocked a mullet like nobody else. I also was super immature. Like, who does this? Seriously, who does this? You're like four years old or something. But, so I don't know why Kim even married me. But um, this, this was an incredibly important moment in, in my life. I, um, I remember knowing that I was to marry this woman, and it was what love was all about. I did my internship at Liberty Church in Bowmanville, um, a great community, and I came home from, from doing that. We were planning to get married in October of 95, and, and I was home in the summer playing hockey with our friends. We were uh, just as normal, just renting the ice, and, and uh, I remember, you know, uh, playing that night, and it was sitting on the bench, and I noticed there was an individual who had come and had sat down beside Kim, and I thought, oh, that's kind of weird. Who is that? I still don't really know why Kim was watching us that night. It's cold in the arena, and we're not all that great, but, you know, I guess it was, you know, well, I'm engaged to him. I better come and support him, that kind of thing. But um, afterwards, on the way home, I said, like, who is that guy? Who, who's talking to you? She said, well, that was your father. What's he doing here? And um, he had caught word that we were getting married, and he knew we were playing hockey that night. My, my brother had told him. And it was in that moment he came and he sat beside Kim and he, he said some things to her that um, further angered me. And I, I, I felt that if he was going to treat the woman that I was going to marry and the person that I love the most, that if that's what he was going to do, that, that was just yet another moment where I was writing him out of my life. And uh, that was it. And so we, we got married. I, I don't know if... Yeah, there's the picture of us. That's actually a cake. Um, that's a massive cake, isn't it? Uh, I distinctly remember not eating much that day. But, um, so we got married, and um, we went to Liberty Church in Bowmanville. And that was where we had an opportunity to first serve. And, and uh, as I said, it was an incredible community. Um, just there was a sense of, of, of growth and, and kingdom building and, and advancement in the, in the community and and uh, people were getting saved, and great things were taking place, and we were a part of this, and it, we just knew that the Lord was blessing the ministry. 
and uh, the youth group was exploding, and, and it was just some good seasons uh, as a pastor and as a couple, and, and um, uh, it, was, it was Father's Day of uh, 1997. Uh, we had just gotten word that we were going to have our first child, and uh, so we were excited, and we were just full of anticipation, and Father's Day of that year, I was teaching the Sunday morning youth Sunday school class. And uh, they were, we were gathered in the gym. It was before the service. And uh, it was, it was um, uh, uh, just a, you know, a good, good class. And, and yet, to, to show you how blind I was to the things that were going on in my I was teaching the students that day how to honor their fathers. Pastors can do some crazy things sometimes. So here I am teaching this lesson, how to honor your father. And I was about to have the biggest smackdown that, that you could possibly have, that I began to realize that I was a hypocrite and I was, I was living a lie. The Spirit just came upon me as I was teaching this lesson, and I just started to do that ugly cry thing, and I ran out of the gym, and I'm sure the, the students thought, Pastor Rich is having a breakdown, what's happening, this is weird, I didn't even come back. And it was in that moment where the Spirit began to convict me about my attitude towards my father and began to soften my heart and began to, to show me that I had some work to do to, to, figure, to figure things out. We, we eventually had our, our son, Kent, and um, I, I know I'm not in Sen's country here. I get it. Uh, congratulations to your team if you're a Leaf fan. You've finally made the playoffs. Um, <laughs> But uh, so we, we moved back to the city of Ottawa, and, uh, and we moved home on staff at Woodville Church. And, and again, we, we, life was, was great. Three more kids and a booming youth ministry, and everything was going really, really well. And, 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 and uh, it just seemed like there was just some great momentum. And you guys remember those days. It was just some, some phenomenal moments together as a, as a Christian community. Just, just great. And you just began to just sense that God was blessing everything everything that we did. There was, there was no question about it. We, we had three more kids, and God was blessing our family. We, we call ourselves the J Crew Six. This is our, our four kids. They're all clearly uh, much older now. But um, it was just one of those moments that we, we knew God was with us. Um, on May the 7th, 2000, I, I had an opportunity to speak in the night service. Uh, Jeff, you remember those night services well? Pe- people were jamming. I was, people were coming to church and jamming the place out. Four or five hundred people, and people would be getting saved and healed and set free. And I had an opportunity to speak that night. I'm sure, Jeff, you led worship, and there was a, just a sense of God's presence. And uh, that night, I felt that the Lord was asking me to speak a message that's very similar to the one that I'm, I'm going to get to it, by the way, uh, that I spoke that night based from Matthew 11. And it was about the habit of hatred. And I felt that I was ready to speak to these people, hundreds of people, about overcoming our grudges and, and forgiving people and, and broken relationships. And here I was, I was ready to speak and to share and to encourage people to seek freedom because <clears throat> I was the pastor, I had it all figured out, thank you very much, I, I was good to go. And so the, um, the night went, went really, really, really well. I remember calling people to the altar and the altars were full. People just seeking the Spirit and, and just asking God to help them in restoring relationships. And it was just down, just right here in this area where a woman, her name was Gloria, and her husband had just left her. And um, 
uh, as, she, as we're praying for her, this was the, the mom of Kim's best friend. We're, we're crying and we're believing for healing and believing for a miracle. And, you know, it's just a powerful moment of ministry right, right down here at the front. And so we, we kind of end and, and I, just, I just sort of bowed my head and I, I said, Lord, who do you want us to, to pray for next? Who, who's the next person? And it was in that moment where, where I, I felt a hand on my shoulder. And then I, then I heard the following words. Do you think the preacher wants to put actions to his words? Don't you think it's time we bury the hatchet, son? And I, I, I looked up and I, I said, pardon me? Do you, do you think the preacher wants to put actions to his words? Don't you think it's time we bury the hatchet, son? You know, back in those days, churches still advertised in newspapers. It was our form of communication. And he had read the paper, and he had realized that I was speaking at, that, at the church that night. And he came, and he sat at the back, and I had no idea who that man was, what he looked like. And in that moment, I just crumbled. Once again, I'm, I'm, saying, I'm trying to help the body of Christ. I'm trying to help speak to people about restored relationships, and I don't even have one myself. And that was the moment that sent me on a, on a journey to understand what forgiveness truly meant. What, what it really meant to forgive someone, to not demand something in return, but to go on a journey to understand what it meant to live in whole and holistic relationships because it's the right thing to do. So I want us to, to turn this morning to Matthew chapter 18. I look out in society today and the church is no different than the world it seems that we've come very comfortable with broken relationships. It seems that we have just simply said, well, this is the way that it is. We've been hurt. We've been wronged. We've, something has taken place, and we've simply allowed it to exist. That's what I allowed in my own life. Just this is what it is, and I'm okay. God, we're, we're going to be fine, and, and we, we've come to grips with it. it it's no different than, than, than here in the, in, the, in the church. And in fact we would potentially feel that there would even be moments, moments that we would feel justified, that, that I am okay to, to hold on to this grudge, that this is a moment where people don't deserve grace or mercy. Unforgiveness is justified, we, we, may, we may say. When you've been wronged or hurt by someone and it leads to a broken relationship, what, what do you do? Do you, do you hold a grudge? You might be saying, but Rich, you, you don't know my story. You know, maybe for you it, it has been like mine, a, a father or mother who rejected you. Or maybe it's a husband and wife, a husband or wife who's abandoned you. Maybe it's a boss who's fired you. Maybe it's a friend who's gossiped or lied about you. Or a neighbor who's stolen from you. I mean, the list goes on of grievances, don't they? He said, Rich, you don't know my story. If you, if you knew my story, you'd, you'd probably step back a little bit here. You probably understand that, that you know, I, I feel somewhat justified in this. Maybe you're like this cartoon. You know, I don't hold grudges. I just remember things for a very long time. Maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that's your story. I, I came across uh, a quote about unforgiveness and grudges, and I felt it to be so profound. Holding a grudge is letting someone... Live rent free in your head, right? When you when you hold on, it just it boxes you up, it closes you in, it keeps you in prison, and then in fact, scientifically, not just spiritually and relationally, 
scientifically, it literally makes us ill. When we hold on to these moments of grudge or unforgiveness, and it locks us to this point that we can't serve the Lord as, as we should, that abundant life in Christ that we're promised isn't what it should be, and yet we, 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 we hold on to it. And so why should we forgive someone? Why should we forgive someone who has hurt us? Well, Jesus tells this powerful story. I want us to go there in Matthew chapter 18. Now, we, we need to make sure that we understand the context be, before we, we get too far into it. We, we know this first question. It's a famous question that, that Peter comes to Jesus and he asks, but he asks the question for a good reason. Right, So this question, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sinned against me up to seven times? And so why is he asking this question? Well, initially, the context of the passage here is pretty important to know. Jesus had just finished teaching uh, the disciples and those who had gathered before around him. And just previously, he had been talking about what it would be like to live in such a way where you're living that causes a brokenness in relationship. That something that you had done would cause brokenness. He said it would be better for you to gouge your eye out or chop your hand off or tie a millstone around your neck than to cause brokenness in relationships. And then he goes on and he tells another story that should there be one that is not in unity or in harmony where the illustration of of the lamb, the sheep, and one has gone missing, it would be better to find that one that had gone missing than than to uh, allow there to be disunity. So there's the context. And Peter asks this question, well then, what does that look like? I mean, that's a great question. Jesus, in a practical way, great stories. You're a great storyteller, Jesus. But like, what does this look like on a day-in, day-out basis? How many times should we seek forgiveness? Now, Peter doesn't ask this question and pick this number randomly. He shows himself to be somewhat knowledgeable about the scriptures. By asking this question, he's referring to something all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. Now, we don't have time to unpack that, but out of Genesis 4, we see where God, in his grace and mercy, provides provision for Cain, having murdered Abel. And in his grace and mercy, he restores Cain back to relationship with him by putting a provision over him that if anybody should harm Cain, there would be a seven-fold uh, moment of vengeance. Well, a little bit later on in chapter 4, Genesis chapter 4, a man named Lamesh, who is Noah's uh, father, uh, grandfather, uh, does the same thing. There, there's a, there's a, there, he kills somebody, and he claims for himself not just sevenfold, but 77-fold protection. So there's some background to Peter's question, but Peter is asking this question based upon the number. He's looking for a number. He's, he's sensing, you know, forgiveness has to run out at some point, doesn't it, Jesus? I mean, just practically speaking, you know, there's only so much we can go, but there's, there's a time where it, it cuts off, right? And we, we know the answer that, that Jesus gives him. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Jesus doesn't answer with a number. He answers with the nature He says, this is what forgiveness is really all about. There's not just some numerical value that you you reach it and you're you're set to, you know, never to forgive, but there's something about it 
that actually is about a lifestyle. It's a nature. It's something about who you are. Jesus says there's a new way to live. The nature of forgiveness. So forgiveness is a lifestyle. Jesus reminds his disciples in that very moment that you can't measure mercy. Because then you're not being merciful. And you certainly can't calibrate grace because then you're not being gracious. There's no measure to it. In fact, there's no story. There's no situation. There's no moment or experience that doesn't fall under this mercy and grace. That no matter what it is that we've experienced, no matter what it is that we live in brokenness, Jesus is saying forgiveness is a lifestyle. And it's incredibly important. And so to illustrate this point, he tells a story as nobody can do. I mean, it's just Jesus telling great stories. And he tells a story about the kingdom. Right? We, we, we know the, the kingdom. And so we continue on in Matthew chapter 18. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king. Now, we'll just make sure we pause to understand what, what Jesus is really referring to here. When he's talking about the kingdom, throughout the Gospels we hear references to the kingdom of heaven, to the kingdom of God. What, what is really being referenced here? Well, we, we know that through the kingdom, the reign of God has come through the person of Jesus. That new, a new way of living and a new way of relating is upon us. It has this sense of something has changed right now immediately. The kingdom of heaven has broken through time and space. Jesus has come. He's representing the Father. Everything is different now. There's this sense that things have changed immediately, and yet things will change in the future. We, we sang about that this morning, right? There's a place. There's a place where the streets have no name. Like, that's a U2 song. Um, where the streets shine. We, we, we saw that hope, uh, the, the, the not yet the heaven, that, that sense that there's something happening in the future that we believe so strongly about. And yet, when Jesus is speaking about the kingdom, he's saying, it's not just about the future, it's about the now. Something changes now. We relate to each other differently now. We relate to the Father differently. So he tells the story about forgiveness as a lifestyle, as saying this is what the kingdom is all about. And then says it's like a king who wanted to settle accounts with the servants that were working with him. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Here is a servant who's faced with an incredible uh, decision. He's, he's been told, you need to pay back this debt. And if you don't pay this debt back, we're taking everything you own. Your family, your way of life, everything is being taken from you. And you're going to jail. Yeah, th think about it for a moment, what that must have felt like. I, I would have totally done what this servant did. He, he falls to his knees and he's begging for forgiveness. Please be patient with me and I will pay everything back. I'll, I'm good for it. I'll, I'll, I'll make it up. I will get it back to you. I, I could see him just pleading his case and holding on and, you know, just... Begging that, that king for, for mercy and grace. I know I owe you this. He would have probably, as, a, as best as I can tell, as I've read and studied this, this, this debt, you know, sort of translated in our economy today, 
would have been about a $60,000 debt. It would have been an annual salary. That's about what he owed. So he's trying to figure out in his mind, how can I pay this back? But I, I'll, I'll get it to you. I'll, I'll, I'm fine with this. And so we, we hear the story as Jesus continues. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. What life was going to be like for this one servant that he was going to lose everything and go to jail and never to see his family again, that he had that staring him in the face. Separation and distance. And yet, the king says, you're free. I forgive you of that. Go on and, and, and live your life. Now, when I, when I read, read the Bible, I, I often will, will ask questions of, about the story and what would it be like to to be in that setting and that, that, that context. So with a little bit of literary license, I, I kind of think that this was now a servant who had been standing before the master, probably in the palace. He leaves the palace. He walks out the front door, and he, he, you've got to cross a moat, right? So he crosses the moat, and he goes in, and he walks home through the forest. And on his way home, he, he's just been released from this debt. He, he's the narrow roads to his pathway home. Jesus starts the story again. So the servant goes out. He finds one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He, he's making his way home and he stumbles upon one of the fellow servants, a friend of his, maybe a neighbor who's living next door to him. And he realizes this dude here holds me a hundred silver coins, and he grabs him by the neck, and he demands to be paid back. Give me everything you owe me, he says. Now, we, we just had heard about the 10,000 talents. We've got a hundred silver coins here. What, what's, the, what's the equivalent? As, again, as best as I can tell, it's about a dollar. It's about a day's wages. We've got an annual wage and a day's wages. This is what is owed this first servant. And in his rage and in his anger, he's demanding that he gets paid it back immediately. And so we, once again, we find this very common moment. In that moment, I'm sure we would have all responded the same way. This second servant falls to his knees and begs, be patient with me and I will pay it back to you. You know, we're reading through the story. I'm sure we're thinking, hey, I've seen this before. I I just read that this was what the first servant did. This story is going to end the same way, won't it? And yet, if you're familiar with the scripture, you know that it doesn't. That first servant refuses to offer forgiveness. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay his debt. Choking him out, you owe me, you you go to prison. And what he had just been forgiven from, he now gives to somebody else. What's wrong with this picture? Why, why would you react like this? Are these the actions of a man who's been forgiven thousands? The words of a man set free from his own debt? The mindset of a man showing grace? It seems so bizarre and irrational. It just doesn't make sense. And yet, friends, here this morning, the truth of the matter is this, is that unforgiveness never does make sense. It never does. It simply just doesn't add up. When we keep people 
in a distant relationship, when we hold grudges and when we have this sense of division and we allow ourselves to accept it for just, well, it is the way that it is. It's bizarre and it's irrational and it's simply not how we ourselves have been treated. So as we look to the story again, we go back and we walk through it a little bit. Jesus says to live a lifestyle of forgiveness. But if we don't, we're going to be ill. What, what does that look like? Well, we see in the story that the first sense is that there's an inability to see clearly. When we hold on to anger and our grudges and our, and our hatred, we, we can't see clearly in front of us what, what's taking place. In the story, the debt that this man had was a fraction of the one that he owed. One dollar, sixty thousand dollars. I mean, you can't see clearly. It doesn't make. We're sitting here today. Well, we're shaking our fist and uh, how could it err? But when we hold on to bitterness and anger, resentment and hurt, we we can't see clearly. And not only that, but we we lose sight of reality. It, it can often skew our common sense thinking. Is that really how to handle the situation? Choking somebody out, taking matters in their own hands? Is, is this the way that one who considers themselves as part of the kingdom really behaves? From there, we're, we're led to thinking of ourselves as something that we're not. You know, here was a servant making king-type decisions. You know, in, in a kingdom, it's not servants who send other servants to jail. It's it's the, it's the king. It's, that's his responsibility. It's not the servants. And here the servants, you go to jail. You, don't, you owe me money. And, you, you know, off you go. Chop off his head. It's not, it's not a servant who does that. That's a, that's a king. But when we hold on to unforgiveness, we can't see clearly. We, common sense thinking gets all thrown out. And we begin to believe something that we're not. What's... What's the cure to being ill? What, what do we need? We, we look back at the story, and in our final moments today, there's, there's three points, because I think all good Pentecostal sermons have three points. Right, Jordan? So how do we learn to live a lifestyle of forgiveness? When we properly understand the grace of God, how are we going to be able to have relationships with those who have hurt us When somebody has hurt you deeply, what what do you do? The only way we can possibly have unity is when we understand God's grace properly. We we know what this story is saying, don't we? We we know the truth about what this story is all about. It's so much more than an earthly king, servants in a kingdom. This is the grandest story of the Bible that speaks about a heavenly Father who in His love and grace sends His Son to die for us. We, we have come through this season, this Easter season, and I couldn't agree with you more, Pastor Jeff, that as we come through it, we live as resurrected people. We live as resurrected people who, whose lives are completely changed and different. It's not just a weekend, but every single day we We receive the grace of God. His grace comes to us in abounding measure. We have received this. It's a debt that was so much greater than we could ever possibly repay on our own, and it was paid for us. 
C.S. Lewis says this quote, you've probably heard it, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. I mean, it's so profound and true that we have been given, forgiven so much and so to live a lifestyle is to recognize we simply forgive over and over and over again. So how do we live a lifestyle? We, we accept the grace of God for ourselves. This morning, if you're sitting here today and you have struggled with this, perhaps there's been something in your life, some situation that you have just been battling, it's been a challenge, would you accept the grace of God today? whose forgiveness covers a multitude of sins, that there is absolutely nothing that can keep you separated from that. If you understand His grace, I know it will change, it will change your life. Second point, not only do we accept the grace of God, but we get our eyes off of the injustice of the situation and focus on the justice of God. Right? We get so preoccupied by the mistakes of others. They did this to me. You know, we shake our hand you know, in the air and say, how dare you do this? I, I felt like that over and over and over again. Dad, how dare you do this to me? And I was focused on the injustice of him, that I missed the justice of God, that was releasing him and was releasing me. It's his justice. And so we'll often say, somebody, somebody needs to pay for this. Right? That's the world we live in. They ran into me, or they stole from me, or they said this, or whatever the situation. Somebody needs to pay. Friends, this morning, we, we, we know that somebody already has. Somebody has already paid for that. And as a result, that's the justice of God. And so we live with forgiveness because we have received it ourselves. So, so we get our eyes on the justice of God, accepting His grace, and we realize that when we remember our position in the kingdom, we are children. We're children of God. Have you ever noticed that when we feel guilty about something, and we feel, we feel guilty and we feel shamed ourselves, we'll often kind of maybe project that onto somebody else take it out on somebody else when we, we ourselves feel that way. But today we know who we are in Christ, right? Our, our new identity in, in Christ. We're sons and daughters. We're heirs of the kingdom. Jesus says this story, the kingdom, you're, you're sons and daughters of the kingdom. The king is for you. When the king is for you, it doesn't matter what's against you. That nothing can separate you from his love when, when, that, when, you, when we recognize that that's who we are. Then we don't have to project something else on somebody others, those who have hurt us. Because we're so loved and accepted, we're, we're sons and daughters. And so nothing separates us from his love. We're, we're, we're children of the king. And that changes everything. That changes how we live life today. Friends, it isn't just about the not yet that one day we will be with Him in glory. It's not just about that. It's about the now. It's about how we live today as resurrected people whose relationships are restored and redeemed. And so the story ends. Sorry. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told the master everything that had happened. And the master called the servant in. 
you wicked servant. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had the mercy on your fellow servant just as I had had on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. In the end, the man who had been forgiven much but refused to live a lifestyle of forgiveness ended up putting himself into jail, ended up living in bondage. And that is often how it works for all of us. Unforgiving servants will always end up living a life in prison. Prisons of guilt and anger and hate. We, we do this to ourselves. The grace of the Father, the King, is there for us to receive, and yet we choose to live in bondage. There's a, a quote about refusing to forgive is until somebody deserves it is like refusing to breathe just to make a point. I'll let them go. I'll forgive them when they, you know, blah, 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 blah. I remember saying that myself. I mean, let me tell you something. I have yet today to hear the words from my father, Rich, please forgive me. I've yet, yet to hear those words. Matt and I, we went on a boys' camping trip about 10 years ago. We thought this was the weekend we were going to hear it. I brought my boys. Matt brought his boy. We, we camped in Algonquin. This was going to be the reconciliation camping trip. No, we just caught fish and burned stuff. Nothing. It's pouring rain on the way out. We're, 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 we're breaking down camp. Matt and I are thinking, hey, is this the moment? No, it's just awkward hugs and bye. But I've got to tell you something. Our relationship today... The three of us, we just had lunch about two weeks ago. Our relationship is strong. Reconciliation has come. He's forgiven. You know why? Because I'm forgiven. Because I've been forgiven. And the Easter story must live in moments of forgiveness. Because the king, the king has redeemed the brokenness. The king has sent his son to die for us. He's he's redeemed the brokenness. He's restored the relationship. I was separated by my sin, and yet I can be in fellowship with God. He's rebalanced the books that I am set free. My debt has been canceled. Our debt has been canceled. And as a result, we must be people who forgive. Pastor Jeff, if you'd come and I guess I could say Laird family come. My question for you today, I, I know we've gone longer than, than normal. My question for you is this, in, in, view of, in view of your forgiven debt, how will you deal with the unforgiveness that you hold on to? Because this is what Jesus says in this passage of Scripture. Forgive without stopping, because that's how the Father has forgiven you. Forgive without stopping. If, If we are going to have the audacity to call ourselves Christians, little Christ, followers of God, if we're going to have the audacity of saying, 
We're king's kids. We live in the kingdom. We celebrate the king. We're going to be with the king one day. If we have the audacity, the nerve to call ourselves that and to associate with that and to receive that, then, then we must recognize the importance of this in our lives, that forgiveness is a lifestyle. So here's the whole story summarized in this one point. Disciples are the forgiven who forgive. If we're going to call ourselves a disciple of Christ, we are the forgiven who forgive. I'm going to invite us to stand. And um, again, you, you, you might be saying, but you, Rich, you, if you only knew the, the hurt, if you only knew the depth. It was about a year and a half ago when I got a phone call from, uh, from a friend back at Woodville Church. And he said, did you hear the news? I said, well, what news? He said, well, Josh Briere was murdered last night. I said, pardon me? And he told me the story of this 26-year-old young man who was in my youth group. And um, he had lived a tough life. I, I, I spent hours and hours and hours with this guy going through high school, chasing him all over the city of Ottawa, taking him out and in and out of trouble, he just struggled so mightily. He got himself caught up in the wrong crowd and, and eventually ended up doing some jail time. When he got out, he reconnected with the church, gave his life back to the Lord, and was working really hard to, to sort of be a faithful witness and help other people. And he brought a, a young man into his apartment who had himself just got out of jail. And he was trying to help this young guy, and he was witnessing to him, and he was trying to just mend uh, his own life. And it was late on a, on a Friday night in October. Um, and and there, was, there was some partying that was going on, this, this, this live-in roommate. And um, there was an incident. And this young man just kind of lost his mind. He ran back into a house, went to get a knife, and he came out and he stabbed Josh, this young man to death and um, we um, we went back for the funeral and Jeff and Helen you know Holly Barrera really well mm. if I can think of a woman who was a prayer warrior <laughs> three boys I remember her always saying Pastor Rich I'm praying for you and Kim and the family praying for the youth group just loving you praying she's just a prayer warrior um the press interviewed her that week. And um, you can read about it in the Ottawa Sun, October of 2016. So I'm not making this up. The press, what do you want to have happen to this, this man? He killed your son, right? We're out for bud. We're out for vengeance. Someone's got to pay. She said, we forgive him. We love him. We accept him. We're going to show him grace and mercy. Yeah, the justice system may have its way. But our family is forgiving him. Now you might say, Rich, that's pretty unfair. You're giving us that particular story. And now, you know, you're putting that up against the things that I've gone through. Friends, it, we've gone through a lot of stuff. There's a lot of raw humanity 
Holly Breer knows. The disciples are the forgiven who forgive. Forgiveness doesn't start with the other person. It starts with the king. That's who starts the process. And he's forgiven us. So it doesn't doesn't begin in, in here. It starts with the king. And as we worship the king, as we give our lives to the king, and as we receive his forgiveness, then we are able to live that lifestyle of forgiveness. And so you may be standing here, which I, I don't think I can. He, he can through you, right? He, he can produce this forgiveness through your life, right? As we are joined to Jesus, we're grafted into the, to the, to the branch. He's, we're the, he's, the, he's the, the vine dresser and his life flows through us so that we can't, he can through us. So as we we sing this song, I simply, I'm not going to ask you to respond to the front this morning. We've gone long, but in your your seat right here, there's a relationship that you know that needs to be restored and repaired. Can I encourage you? Maybe it's an email today, a phone call, a text, a lunch sometime, some kind of a, a letter, a reach out that you would begin to live a life of forgiveness. Because that is what will change this world. That's the story that will change this community. The gracious mercy of a heavenly father that the king, the king's kids live in a different way. What's going to fill this new church and turn this this community around is that others hear the story of this gracious king because they see the kids, the sons and daughters living in such a way that's so different than everything they've ever seen before. That's what's going to change. It's the body of Christ. The disciples live as those who have been forgiven. They forgive much. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this community. The body of Christ here at Stouffville Pentecostal Church. Thank you, Lord, for the blessing they've been to me. I just pray blessing upon them today. We celebrate, Lord, what's taking place. We celebrate what provision you've provided here in this new building and, and, and location and what's going to happen and transpire through that. We, this is all about you. It's, it's about you. It's about you who you, you care about the people in this community. You care about being restored in relationship to them. You care about each and every person who lives in this area that you want to be in relationship with. And in your divine providence and sovereignty, you have decided to use us to be part of the story, to help mend relationships, to connect people with your hope and love. And I pray, O oh God, that we would do this faithfully that we would represent you well as king's kids. Mm-hmm. That, Lord, we would point people to the gracious Father. You have excused the inexcusable in us, and so, Lord, we thank you so much for that. Yes, we have accepted your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. We're so blessed, O oh God. And in doing that, I pray you'll help us in our personal relationships. Lord, today there's no doubt brokenness. Perhaps for decades 
we've not wanted to be honest with ourselves. We've held on to it. We've gotten used to it. We've grown accustomed. But by your spirit today, you're nudging us, Lord, towards a lifestyle of forgiveness. That you'll help us to take courageous steps. To do the right thing. Even as faces are being seen in, in our mind's eye as we're thinking about someone. Something that's been said, that's done. Whatever the level of hurt. We thank you, God. At the cross, it's been forgiven. And as resurrected people, we live that lifestyle of forgiveness. And we release people. We release a mom and her dad, a husband or wife, son or daughter, an aunt and uncle, a boss, a neighbor, whatever the story may be, we release them today. We release people today. May there be forgiveness granted. Yes, Lord. That we would walk in restored relationship. Lord, I thank you for my father. Lord, as he's probably leaving church right now, I just pray blessing upon him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. That you've allowed us to have a reconciled relationship. Lord, I thank you so many years ago you healed my mother. Today she still lives for you. May you bless her today as she's serving in church right as we speak. Thank you, Lord God. In my story, grace and mercy has been evident. May it be evident in all of our lives. In a world full of hatred and anger, it's your grace that will set people free. We thank you, Lord, for it. We come today, Lord, to you, thanking you so much. You're so good. Thank you. We give you praise. Thank you, Lord. 